listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Had a very interesting discussion with a student yesterday. And she made the comment, she's struggling with uh, some stuff that's going on with a, a relative. And she mentioned, uh, she goes, you know, in my head, I understand kind of where the practice is taking us and so forth. I understand, you know, how I'm supposed to be present and how I'm supposed to face everything, no matter how painful, no matter what the cost, you know, not supposed to, not supposed to move. I'm just supposed to face whatever is. And she said, so I, I get all that in my head, but in my heart, you know, I just can't, I just can't do it. And I pointed out to her that what she was describing as her heart is actually a very secret recess of the mind that masquerades as the heart. I'll say that again. What she was describing, remember when, she, when I said, she said, in, in my heart, I just can't, I, in my head I get the practice, I know what I'm supposed to do, but in my heart I just, I, I just can't. You know, when, when, when it strikes my heart, I just, oh, you know, I get caught. And what she, the term she's using, heart, is actually a secret recess of the mind. It's one of the most contracted spaces of our mind where identification, clinging, uh, general um, negativity, avoidance show up quietly, subtly with incredible sophistication. And so I wanted to kind of bring this up. I didn't get anywhere in the conversation um, with her. It was very, very brief, a very brief encounter. And that would have taken actually a little bit of time to discuss. But I wanted to point that out to the group just to make sure, I mean, not to parse terms or anything, but when we talk about our heart, you'll find that I, I sometimes, I much prefer actually to use the word body. We have this body and we have this mind and the body is this amazing vehicle for the mind. There's all this great material these great uh, receptors of what is that are then filtered through the mind and given meaning. The mind gives meaning to all this stuff. In our bodies, there is a lack of filtration, which means that when we listen to our bodies, as I say so much, when we give a little bit of our attention 
out to the world and keep a little bit within our bodies, what we're able to do is generate an awareness. And that awareness inevitably, sometimes it takes a while, sometimes it happens immediately, but that awareness shows us that the many is in fact one. And the minute we see that the many are in fact one is the minute we can begin to see the one in the many. Okay? And as this happens, we begin to embody an awakened presence. We begin to carry ourselves through the world a little differently. We don't need anything extra. There's no pretense. There's no agenda. There's no resistance. There's no defense. We are coming from a place of absolute and total unification. And in this space, in that place of total unification, another person's pain is our pain. Another person's joy is our joy. All of this stuff arises to create this, in essence, new self, a much bigger self. And in that big self, the heart, quote-unquote, never gets caught by anything. That secret recess of the mind that masquerades as the heart, quote-unquote, is seen for what it is, is known for what it is. It's just a little corner where the ego prays that the light won't shine. The light shines there. The light shines there from the place of openness. So intentionally resting there, in that quietude, in that open field, that radical estate, just resting there, is resting in a place that is beyond thought. It's resting in a place that is beyond time. It's resting in the always already here and now. And that gives us a much broader context, more tools that we can use to build our lives and know that no matter what, the lives themselves will fall apart just like everything else, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But it doesn't mean we can't play well and that we can't play hard and that we can't play for keeps that we can't play with a big fat smile. We're going to do this a little bit differently tonight. Um, I'm going to give a very short talk and then what I'm going to do is I'll group you up into groups of approximately four and then we'll come back into the, the circle and I'm going to kind of let you guide, uh, it's going to be a longer Q&A, um, 
just because I, for some reason it just it struck me as I was sitting in here that there's stuff coming up and I really want to make sure we can address it as uh, uh, forthrightly and as skillfully as possible. So, essentially what I wanted to try to communicate tonight as best as possible is this way we kind of start recognizing the one. How do we start recognizing the one? And then how do we see that the one is actually a combination of all of, of the all, the many? And then how do we then turn that back into recognizing the one in the many? So that may sound really convoluted, but essentially is how do we take a realization, a knowing with a capital K, not like knowing intellectually, but a knowing that resonates with our bodies, not an emotional component of our minds that we confuse with the word heart. How do we get that one within us? How do we, how do we recognize it fully? And then how do we recognize that one in everything else? And it's actually done in a relatively simple formula that um, can take a while <laughs> to uh, implement. But uh, I have referred to it before as the four A's. The four A's. And the four A's of our practice carry us into that space, that deep singularity. They are being aware when we are aware Okay, when we're accepting, when we're available, and when we're authentic. When we are aware, accepting, available, and authentic. The minute that really happens, the minute that really kind of starts to shake loose all the extra stuff that we don't need, we begin walking through life as Buddhas. So what does it mean? How, how is it that we do this? How, how is it, you know, something so simple could allow us to more or less embody this teaching? Um, well, to begin with, being aware is something that I yammer on about constantly. So are you really alive to what's going on right here right now, this very instant? Are you um, participating from awareness? Now, let's bring this back to what I was talking about earlier, how the person said, well, I understand intellectually what I'm supposed to do with this practice, but then when push comes to shove, when the, when it, when the, uh, uh, the kitchen gets hot, I immediately go to my heart and everything falls apart. Well, that is essentially the same thing as saying, I understand what I'm supposed to do because I've read the script and I can deliver those lines well. But when my mind gets going and it starts getting busy identifying and those identifications begin to fall into and resonate in my body, I have an emotional response. An emotional response is not 
your heart. An emotional response, response is where your mind meets your body. Your heart, in the way I'm using it here, your heart is this open place that allows for that pain, that allows for that emotion, that allows for that pleasure, and allows for all of it. It doesn't judge it like your mind judges it. It doesn't compartmentalize it, categorize it, or push it anywhere. It just allows it. That's your heart. And if you can live from that place, you are aware. You are aware. When we talk about our bodies and how our bodies are kind of that unfiltered place of just experience and then the mind creates a filtering, you can test this out on your own if you don't believe me, but for the moment, just, just stick with me here. If I were to ask you not how are you feeling, which involves some type of interpretation, some type of categorization, compartmentalization, and evaluation, and then delivery, Instead of asking you, how are you feeling, if I were to ask, what are you feeling right now? What just happened to everyone in this entire room is most likely they went thunk into their bodies and they suddenly had to become aware of what was going on within their bodies. That awareness is step one. You were aware of what was going on in your body. You weren't evaluating it. You were just aware. Slight tension in my right shoulder. Not slight tension in my right shoulder. I hate it when it does that. <laughs> right? That's when, we, that's when mind then jumps right back in. So for a split second, we had awareness within the body, or what we also could call the field of the heart. Okay? We have awareness. And then from awareness... We go into the second A, which is accepting. We totally accept what is. We accept what arises in our awareness. We don't push it, pull it, modify it, shape it, wish it was different, beg for it to be different, create some type of uh, negotiation with some greater deity, so that it will be different maybe at some future point in time if as long as I do the following. There's no negotiation. It's acceptance. It's open. It's uncensored. Nor does it censor. It is absolutely 100% comfortable with the unknown and the unknowable. It accepts. If you want to gussy it up a little bit, you could say, it is surrender. It accepts. It accepts what is. Now, whenever any of us accepts what is, this doesn't automatically mean, and this is where the ego loves running with this one, perhaps yours is doing this right now, and if it is, great. It doesn't mean if you accept what is, that you don't 
respond to what is. Accepting what is does not mean that you go, oh well, people are being harmed and I'm accepting it. And I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm just going to I'm just going to accept it. The ego helped make another withdrawal in that one moment. Instead of people are being harmed and I'm going to participate from this place of accepting awareness so that they don't get harmed because after all they are part of me and I am part of them. That's a different response than people are getting harmed therefore I will continue drinking my Budweiser. Totally different. It's totally different. Okay? So being aware and being accepting doesn't mean that you become a couch potato or a cushion potato in our case. You engage. You still engage. All right? Third A, availability. Be available. Put another way, we could say this means true availability means that there is absolutely no complaint. There's no complaint. Again, there's still participation, but there's no complaint. It is what it is. As much as I can't stand that phrase, it is what it is. It's very true. The reason why I don't like it is because I think people throw it around. It's so, it's so powerful. People throw it around. Ah, it is what it is. Basically saying, whatever. And that usually implies actually a disconnect as opposed to a total connect. And I'm speaking of, when I say be available, I'm speaking of a total connection with all things. All situations. All people. All selves. When we are available, we're truly undivided. We are non-oppositional. We are non-resistance embodied in this available, aware space. And then the last one, be authentic, it means get real. I say that a lot, but don't lie. What are, what are you lying about? What are you hiding from, in other words? Lying and hiding, avoidance. Lying is an avoidance strategy. Lying is a manipulation of what is. Get real. What is really going on? What is really happening within your body? Within the contents of your mind, what is really, really going on. And that can be um, somewhat of an effortful study that's continuous. That doesn't stop. Actually, none of this ever stops. Enlightened masters never stop in these four areas. There's a continuance, continual opening into this space. And the authenticity and the availability, 
and the accepting nature, the awareness, all of those things lead us inevitably into a space of deepening, of quietude, of stillness that then is able to inform our busy lives. That's really what this practice is about. The 21st century human being is going to have a busy life. Even if we simplify it, which I'm hopeful that we can all, you know, I'm speaking to myself here too, kind of really, really consider simplifying our lives. As much as we simplify our lives, we still, most likely, are going to be dealing with more information hitting us more quickly, more of the time. How are we going to be able to deal? The Enlightenment practices of 14th century and 13th century Japan, okay, the Theravadan tradition uh, in, in Thailand, let's say, look at the Tibetan tradition and so forth, those things are all marvelous. They have so much to point us toward. And that's just Buddhist practice. All spiritual practice, regardless, regardless of its flavor, has a lot to teach us. But how do we recontextualize it for what's present now? That's part of our availability. That's part of our authenticity. That's part of our awareness. That's part of our ability to accept what is. So basically what I'm giving you are dance steps. <laughs> Let's boogie. <laughs> so I'll start with a question. Um, and I don't want anybody to answer it. How many of you in your groups, please don't answer it, don't show hands, just think about this. How many groups had someone offer up advice? Somebody said, well, here's where I get stuck. And somebody offered up advice. There's no crime, no harm, no foul. But there's this amazing tendency for us to throw stuff out there when the most important thing about being aware, authentic, available, okay, accessible, all of this stuff is to just hear them. Just hear them. Okay? So if you did offer up advice, please do not feel shame. If you were that person who had advice for every single person, you know, I mean, you might want to look at that. But uh, great, great way to hide if you're you know, just in that fixer mode all the time. But one of the ways that we can bring this talk that I gave tonight into our day-to-day -day is making sure that we're really present when we hear someone. When somebody is talking to us, we just hear them. And we don't necessarily start doing a form of checklist in our head about what should happen next. 
This is especially true for teachers. Put the chalk down. <laughs> Come out with your hands. Uh, yeah. Except now we don't even use chalk. It's whiteboard stuff. So anyway, questions? Questions? Anyone? Yeah, David. <clears throat> How do we distinguish this, uh, which you're saying uh, people refer to as something in their heart, and it's really um, this dark corner of the... The dark corner. corner I like that. The dark <laughs> corner of the ego. Yes, it's not, it's not necessarily dark, it's just a secret place. The ego keeps it heavily guarded because it disguises it as a pseudo-awakening. And, and, like? and so what, what we start be becoming sensitive to the more we practice is that um, confusing our heart with the sum total of our emotional life makes it really difficult to get past our emotional life on the path. So one of the things we can do is, is instead of confusing any type of emotional experience with, with uh, you know, be it, if it's, if it's bliss, oftentimes the ego can say, there you go, that's awakening, okay? Or if it's incredible pain, you know, my, those knees are too sore for that to be awakening. When neither bliss nor pain has anything to do with awakening. It's our awareness of the bliss and the pain that is our awakening. So rather than the voice that judges or the sensory apparatus that feels, confusing those two with awakening usually sends us back and forth all the time instead of out of that phase lock. Okay? Instead of that bounce, it's, it's bigger. How does that resonate? Yay or nay or indifferent? <laughs> Don't think about it too much. Right? Feel your life. Feel your life and be aware of the feeling. Participate intellectually in your life with your mind, but be very aware of those thoughts. Then you're right, you're, you're on the track, you're on the path. Red carpet, right, right there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So is it here, or are you saying, in my heart, I know this is right? Is it the same as intuition? Is yeah. intuition in the same category? Yeah, I think it is. And I think, in my heart, I know it's right. If we just take that phrase, we have ego in there. In my heart, I know this is right. You know, and very, it, it takes us right down into, you know, attachment, attachment, clinging, clinging, grip. You know? And so, so it's something to watch. 
that doesn't mean that the next time you have some real powerful sense of just unquantifiable knowing, you know, and it's got this behind it, uh-huh, that doesn't mean that you should second guess and go, oh, but that might just be ego, and, and you know, you don't want to go into that space. Allow yourself to participate. Allow yourself to participate and make a mistake. Make lots of them. That's fine. But be aware of the mistake or be aware of the success. Be aware of the correct, if you will, apprehension of what is. That's accessibility. That's awareness. That's availability. That's authenticity right there. Okay? So I realize, based on your two questions, I, I know that this can create kind of a, whoa, well, wait a minute, you know? And that's great. That's really what, what the practice is supposed to do. And what teacher guy is supposed to do is get you to always kind of be in that slightly off-balance place so that you're not locked into something of surety, of absolute, right? Because the minute we go into that place of absolute clarity, you know, absolute clarity always leads, I'll say this, conviction, absolute conviction, absolute certitude always leads to violence. Always. It might be mild violence. It might be internalized. It might be sarcasm. It might, you know, but it always leads to harm. So not quite being so sure. Repeat that again. Absolute certitude always leads to harm. Absolute certainty always leads to harm. So being able to be comfortable. I'm going to get to Carla here in a second. <laughs> yeah, God damn it. You want to come here? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, I wish I could, I can't really um, take credit for that quote. I mean, Oliver Wendell Holmes talked about that. I mean, talked about somebody who was always absolutely sure. Uh, so it's ironic that it would come from him. But still, um, and on the bench, no less. I mean, while he was in the Supreme Court, he you know, made this statement about the, uh, about the, uh, the war, the Civil War. That said, we can see this just play out. We can see our certitude lead us into places of, of contraction. Yeah, please, please, by all means. <clears throat> so, if one has a big intuition, mm -hmm. would a useful attitude be to say, wow, I have a huge feeling about this, I wonder if it's right, and then watch and see? Yep. Okay. <laughs> right. Now, you use, the, you use the key verb, to wonder. When we're wondering, we're there. Because when we're wondering, we're open. You can't, you can't wonder and be closed. Which is the opposite of the certitude, right? Wonder is the opposite of the certitude. So wonder takes us right into the house of God. Certitude knocks on Satan's door. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Michael, at some point, though, you have to make a move. Mm-hmm. You know. Oh, absolutely. You make a you make a move with wonder. So you just you're saying just do the best you can and, yeah. and look at that feeling of intuition and yeah. I because mean, you're not saying don't let that guide you to some extent. Of course. Okay. Of course, let it guide you. And if you screw up, great. Wonder about that screw up. If you succeed, great. Wonder about that success. But what, what essentially, I mean, really what, what we're kind of moving around here is the, the, the ability for any of us not to attach to outcomes allows us to participate more fully in whatever it is that we're doing. Whatever move we make, Bobby, whatever move we make, if, it's not, if we're not clinging to an outcome, the dance becomes really authentic. Uh, and you see this in performers. Uh, a performer who is who kind of gets out of their own way and just lets lets their work transcend the notes that are written on the page as they're playing, or you know, or as they're singing. We see this constantly. Uh, I have been recently most intrigued with uh, poets that do, the, you know, spontaneous, like in poetry slams and so forth. I was at this, this, uh, this gathering in uh, Berkeley, and I was listening to these people who were really good at it. They were freestyling. And it, it weakened my knees. It weakened my knees. Because what were they doing? They were participating from this place that was way beyond anything that they could configure. They let it go, but they were right there, and they were in front of everyone. They were in, in such a position of risk, you know? Yeah. And they were just right there. And if we can each live our lives like that, and that, you know, damn it, this counts. This is not a dress rehearsal. This is it. We're going to die. You know, man, there's just this just amazing gift that is given and received all at once.